0: Again and again, the Democratic Party has embraced some elusive middle, and they lose. Perhaps they really don't have an alternative to embracing left populist energy. Maybe that will work. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a
1: code. Get an ambulance
0: back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means the are still firing. We just need to get a message through. It seems the vast majority of political analysts and pundits agree. We're watching a train wreck in progress when it comes to democracy. If it continues on pace, democracy itself is in serious trouble in the upcoming elections. It's quite clear what the new far-right Republican Party is for, authoritarianism, religious nationalism, replacing our republic. But yet again, as has happened a sickening number of times before, No one knows what the Democrats are for. Average people, notably in the Midwest, clearly see Democrats as obsessed with a non-candidate Donald Trump, who they largely adore. Aside from Build Back Better, which is really pretty good, how is it that they so thoroughly fail to connect with and inspire what should be and used to be the Democratic base of working people who live in less densely populated regions? Though the leadership of the Democratic National Committee chooses to keep its blinders on as they head straight on to another crushing defeat, there are alternatives right there in front of us, and history shows they work. If Democrats can only locate their backbone and not rush tail between legs to some imagined inoffensive middle, there is another way, and it's right before our eyes. Our guest today, Professor Wallace Hettle, gets it. Will Democrats dare to take off those corporate-fitted blinders and consider another better way, one with much greater likelihood of success? As Democrats do nothing, the Republican Party is a well-oiled machine fired up with great enthusiasm and drive. Dr. Hettle, I believe, will tell us what Democrats are missing. Dr. Hettle has recently written an article titled The Democrats Don't Have an Alternative to Embracing Left Populist Energy. Wallace Heddle is Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa, and he regularly teaches survey courses on U.S. history. In addition, he teaches on topics such as the Civil War and Reconstruction and the American Radical Tradition. He's taught seminars on such topics as Mark Twain, American slavery, and the Civil War and American culture. His most recent book is The Confederate Homefront, A History of Documents. While he enjoys studying the South, Dr. Hettle is a lifelong resident of the Midwest. His columns have appeared in The Chronicle of Higher Education, The History News Network, Raw Story, Newsweek, Al Jazeera, and Yahoo News. The article that got my attention is titled, For 2022, the Democrats Don't Have an Alternative to Embracing Left Populist Energy. Dr. Heddle, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: You.
0: And as you say in your opening paragraph, little wonder the Democrats have an enthusiasm gap, end of quote. What does this enthusiasm gap look like? What are some manifestations illustrating that enthusiasm gap?
1: Um, well, have you been to a political rally there uh, um, There, There aren't many. That's true. Um, um, and that's what I started talking about the populace, was that these were people um, who... All, all, Not just in election years, but all the time, had picnics and gatherings and speakers. And they created what one historian has called a movement culture. And a movement culture would be a culture of people who are together, um, expanding their ideas, teaching each other, learning from their experiences. Um, not just eight weeks before the election, but um, year-round.
0: Yeah, interesting. It's it's about a movement, and and these Republicans seem to have learned from that, but, but not us. You know, we just wait, as you say, till right before the election, and guess what? That doesn't work. I, I noticed there's uh, some organizations around that Democratic support groups have agreed that the strategy for winning in 2022 must be around educating people. Now, I've been around Democratic politics for many decades, and every year— after loss, we gather to lick our wounds, and the same prescription is offered each and every time. we got to get out there and educate people. Uh, I, <laughs> I think that plays right into uh, the uh, conventional wisdom that uh, Democrats are elitist and reinforces the enthusiasm gap. What about this go out there and educate the people, do you think? How's that going to play?
1: Well, um, there's the old saying, which is, "Who will educate the educators? Um, what, where will we get our ideas um, that we're going to um, teach?" And the answer is, honestly, I don't know. Um, and as I reread really the opinion piece that you so kindly called me on the show for, um, I realized that um, I was missing one thing which was to have enough humility. Um, I um, have some ideas for how political uh, activity can work, but I think we to start from the place that, um, we'll go back to the best and brightest, right? The the guys who started the Vietnam War. Um, They were conventionally the best and the brightest. They'd gone to the right schools. Um, They didn't uh, speak Vietnamese, uh, or you not have any specialists in scope these, but they were the best in the price.
2: Uh-huh. And
1: so, um, you know, I, in my job as a professor, I get to listen to myself speak um, a lot. <laughs> and um, I'm very persuasive to myself. But I just want to start to say, um, I could be wrong. Um, I, I've been wrong before. Um, that said, can I take issue with something you open with? Sure. Well, well. Anyway, um, when you think of the Republicans as a well machine, I think that's that's right in a sense. They, they do better in elections than they do um, if you were to poll their individual positions, and that's a sign of political strength. I'm not convinced, though, that they're a well-oiled machine. I think, for one thing, they are still rallying around a one-term president.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. It's very rare that you get the presidency and don't get a second term. Yes. Um, it just because the powers of incumbency are so great. Um, Trump had the powers of incumbency. One thing he did, just to give one example, um, he started a trade war with China, and that, and therefore, China um, put down some tariffs that uh, really hurt Iowa farmers. And Trump responded to that by dumping all kinds of money. I will not farmers. Mm-hmm. Um you can do that if you're an incumbent. Mm-hmm. Um so why would a guy who has a policy the has the power to do that? Um, why does he lose? Um I think that's a question we should be asking. Just so that we're not too much on the defensive, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Uh he had all that power. I mean, uh Bush the first also Lost after one term, but you're right, it is pretty rare. So it is, and and Bush the first, he was coming off, um,
1: when he ran for re election, he was coming off three terms of presidential Republican Reagan had it for two years, true, and then and then HW Bush. So the Republicans kind of had their time, uh huh. Um, so what Trump did really takes some doing. Um, I'm not. So, I don't want to. I worry about people who want to focus the next election on Trump. Um, Right. Well, I mean, yes, the guy tried to overthrow the government. Yeah. Um, That's a good reason. But I think you also have to focus on checkbook kind of issues. Absolutely. What you can do for ordinary people.
0: Yeah. And reaching the people in, for example, Iowa, where you are. Uh, you can't—I mean, it was—Democrats, uh, in a way, got lucky because Trump was so bad that Biden won. And I think, quite frankly, in 2016, the the arrogance and elitism that was shown across the country by our nominee also elected Trump. In both cases, I don't think it was so much for the eventual winner, but against uh, the the other person— and I, I've long thought Democrats need to be for something. You know, if they hoist something up their flagpole and we don't, usually uh, they win. But the Democratic National Party is not all the Democrats. And I think that's important to recognize. And as you point out, in 2016, the Democrats nearly nominated a Democratic Socialist, Bernie Sanders, but of course, the moneyed influence of Wall Street on the party powerful forced their choice on the party. And we know what happened. There are two questions in there, not which, which to do first. What was the unique and unexpected strength of, of the Bernie movement? And what role did the perceived elitism play in our nominee losing, which should have been an easy cakewalk?
1: Boy, there's a lot in that good news question. Start with Bernie. Um, I do get somewhat of a privileged point of view in Iowa um, because of the caucus system. I I don't think the caucus system being focused on one state is a great idea, Mm. but that's the way it is. So Bernie was such a surprise. The first rally I went to with Bernie was on Father's Day, and I brought my son, who was maybe 14, Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, and leave aside that I came out of the the rally uh, excited by ideas that were so different, and by using this word socialism, which was a no-no in American politics. Yeah. um, I was excited by that, but then my son um, actually signed up to volunteer, and he um, didn't have... Uh, 14 years of hearing how bad socialism was Yeah. Um, he w- was listening to things that made sense um, uh, check with things mostly from his point of view um, so uh, Bernie was the um, like, same thing and he asked and I'll give you uh, uh, another Iowa story which is that I was teaching um, uh, an 11 o'clock class at, the, at a time when Hillary was going to give uh, an event at 12 in, the, in our student union. So, um, the distance between the history building and the student union is about 75 feet. So, I finished my class, went down to see the Hillary rally, and she'd done it completely differently than any candidate i ever seen before, which is that um, she had space for about 75 people. Um, and these were chairs set down, so the room, the room could have held more for people. people standing. Um, but she got 75 chairs or so, and then three big TV cameras. And so people like me who came in a little on the late side were blocked. I had to move around and shove people to see her. Now, we know she's not a dynamic speaker, and that could be okay, person she was even less dynamic than I would have expected but also there was this barrier between me and having decent silence to see her because her event was organized around uh, TV wow. rather than actually reaching people mm-hmm. and so I think there's a connection between her lack of natural political talent um she, she's top to that. Right? She said, no Obama, no Bill Clinton. But, and that would be fine. Lots of politicians don't, aren't natural. But the second part, planning your event in ways that exclude um, people from actually participating, uh, is not good. <laughs> um, I'm convinced that TV uh, is going to be less and less important as time goes on. And so you got to think of other ways to reach
0: people. Interesting point. There is the uh, the competition to TV, the so- so-called social media, and I know from my own campaigns that personal touch absolutely matters. On the ground, reaching out to people, connecting with them, and listening to people, opening up and listening to people. And, you know, we Democrats just haven't gotten that there was the election just recently down in virginia where the candidate was remarkably elitist and uh he got squashed you got to listen to people and i you know we can see that the the trumpists a lot of people said they felt like, well, Trump cared about me. He He's okay with me as I am. He's not trying to change me. It just you know, connects with who I am. And it's a different dynamic now. I think that's uh, important that uh, TV is probably less important now. Who would have thunk it? For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. And actually, we picked this name before 2016. Who knew? Huh, our guest today is uh, Professor Wallace Hettle, who is a professor of uh, politics, uh, or history, rather, at the uh, University of Northern Iowa. And I was in Iowa in 1984 working on the uh, George McGovern campaign. He came in a tight third there, and I, I was impressed with Iowa. I think we we need to get back to the Iowas, the Midwest, the, the people that, uh, that live there. And there used to be something uh, as as you know, called prairie populism, and that was most strong in the Midwest, and that was that I believe also came out of the uh, another Gilded Age, uh, and somehow we we just kind of lost that and, and just abandoned the, uh, the the Midwestern culture, and uh, we what what can you say about that? You know, the, the 1890s, uh, what well, Lawrence Goodwin, author Lawrence Goodwin, describes as a movement culture. The Trump people have had a movement culture. The Tea Party was a movement culture. We don't got that. Tell us about that, please, the movement culture back then. Um, well,
1: let me talk about movement culture now um, first.
2: Yes, great.
1: Um, right now, this is just... Uh, a small example of how um, the process works um, we know that um, in the typical election um, the parties will identify maybe eight maybe ten battleground states and then they'll dump all the advertising money um... they can get uh... into tv ads and now facebook ads um, uh, and it was worse than last time around because of the coronavirus uh... democrats um, didn't feel like it was a good idea to campaign door to door, and I wouldn't want to question that. No, judgment. for sure. Um, yeah, um, but this notion that we that we should identify the, the the states we can win, and then dump money on them, um, it, it does serve the interest of political consultants. Um, I know Joe Trippy from the two thousand four.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, Howard Dean campaign. Sure. He made five million dollars in the matter of three months for making <laughs> terrible commercials, <laughs> and and he's uh, not the last person to have done that. Yeah. Terry McAuliffe is another example. Um, a big money approach that, of course, is going to turn people off. Um, most people don't have big money. And imagine what it's like to have big money. And if someone like Trump or Josh Hawley, wants to do uh, with, some historians use the term reactionary populism. Um, this is used by a historian Nathan McLean, describing the Klan in the 1920s. Uh-huh. They were reactionaries in that they were um, against things like the labor movement, but they posed um, as men of the people, as the people like George Wallace, who's had this Go through our history, and it worked. Yes. Um. Uh, so, oh, can I go back around to Iowa though? And um, yeah, where, where yeah. Is Iowa. I'm. Um. Because this question of um, how we deal with the Midwest. That yes, absolutely. Is one that's animating to you. And I have steam coming out of my ears about the <laughs> way I hear of Iowa being. Reclassified as a red state, um, and the reason why is because um, Iowa went for Obama twice, and there are two states where the majority of people, let's say the majority of white people, voted for Obama in 2012. Well, I guess that they are.
0: Uh, well. Iowa, if, yeah, Iowa's one. There's not yeah. a lot of uh, people of color there. Uh, don't know and
1: Utah what... would be the other.
0: Oh, my. Ah, yeah, interesting. You...
1: Yeah, so um, uh, next time we talk to a barista in Brooklyn, um <laughs> tell them that um, the majority of whites in New York State did not support Obama in 2012. Oh. Um, anyway, mm. Obama, Obama's success here. Remember, he won his first caucus here. Mm-hmm. Came from the fact that ordinary Hawaiians are not a bunch of reactionary racist Yahoo! And if you look at how our state government has gone um, Republican over the last two years, we just lost the governor's election—the last one—because
0: um, the Democratic
1: candidate, named Fred Hall, um, was one of the richest people in the state, and. He was so entrenched in wealth that the governor's mansion is called Hubble House. So if Fred Hubble had won, he would have moved into his family's mansion, which had been appropriated for the governor's mansion in Iowa many years ago. Um, this last Senate campaign um, Iowa, um, where Iowa elected to a years. Oh, the Democrats had a decent opponent there. The first time, 20 years, um, a senator got elected, um, she was running against a congressman named Bruce Bradley. And Bradley was a very rich trial lawyer mm-hmm. who made the mistake um, during the campaign of warning donors um, that, that unless something was done. Chuck Grassley, a farmer, would be running the Judiciary Committee. Now, you can imagine how well a full-throated denunciation of foreigners would go over in Iowa. It didn't go over well. Right. And so, I guess I'm saying, in the case of Hollow or Bruce Valley, these were bad picks. And it doesn't mean that Iowa can't come back to the place of being a purple state. Um, there is a kind of Tom Harkin... Uh-huh. A tradition in the state, yeah, that we should not give up on, and I think it is. It will be debated in the next cycle about whether Iowa is a worthy really place um, to put money.
0: But, uh, you know, I know when you when you communicate very clearly that we're going to fly over your state. It's not important to us. We're focusing on other states. What the heck are people going to do? <laughs> that may have something to do with an enthusiasm gap. And well, it, Go ahead.
1: And I think that you have to rethink the way you do politics. It comes back to this example of having a movement culture. Yes. My son is a college student in Minnesota, and he's a very enthusiastic activist. Excellent. And... Um, Every two years, he'll work for the Democratic Party, he'll knock on doors, and he was to seat after the last election that his group, the college Democrats, um, didn't have anything to do. Um, they spent four months knocking on doors, but the, there's no help for the Democratic Party. Um, you could take a, a 25-year-old, pay them not very much money... right?" and have them go from campus to campus, organizing groups. Would it be hard to organize groups the last long time? Well, and the Democratic Socialists of America I do it. Um, they have an abundant network of campus groups. So I imagine the Democrats would do it, too. The question becomes, why don't they do it? Right, right. And if, and, we'll, and we'll get you back to um, the problem Uh, in the party that there's too many of the leadership are either in the 1% or overly sympathetic to the 1%. Right.
0: And that's, you know, people remember, people do remember the uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street and the phrase the 1% got stamped into the American consciousness and it's still there. And as you say, you're your son and that generation my same as my daughter's generation uh and i think a lot of i just i think there's so much potential for focusing on who's running this country whose country is this whose government is this is it working for you or is it working for the rich people now the mainstream democrats the hillary clinton democrats can't possibly wade into that territory. They can't do that, but th- that's where the strength is, I think. Uh, but but they're afraid to do it. They they go for some center, and I I don't think there really is that center. I think it's a an imaginary thing that can keep their money coming in from the top one percent, uh, and and not alienate people. But they lose. How how right. how is it that uh, you know FDR connected with with something that uh, Huey Long was was into, and he was a populist for sure. I don't know left right sort of a combination of both. But Huey Long from Louisiana spoke about you know instead of waiting for crumbs to fall from the table, that we need a place at the table, and I I just think that's more of a movement thing. That, that we need. What Your thoughts on what I'm talking about there? Sure.
1: Um, the main way ordinary people are involved in the Democratic Party is knocking on doors um, as far as actual activity. But the knocking on doors, um, to my knowledge, every mainstream candidate, including Bertie, who's run in Iowa, has had a script the people who do out to follow. And what the door knockers do is that they don't change votes, they harvest votes. Um, you ask them who they support, um, you mark down the response um, on a one to five scale, and that response will then go back to the office and it will be used on election day to, because you've identified your supporters. And then you call them on election day and bring them out. There's been an academic, I don't want to say movement, but there's been people in academia who have talked about something called deep canvassing, and this is not really a radical idea. Um, When you canvass, you go to the door, and you try to persuade people. Um, Right now, Democrats only go to the doors of Democrats, and if they have some extra time, of independence. But... Talking to people, it shouldn't be that radical of an idea. The problem you can identify with having ordinary volunteers talking to people is that they could go off message. Uh, true. Right? Um, but you can't have a popular movement without allowing people to talk. <laughs> and sometimes people will say the right thing. And, but Terry McHuliffe also might not tell them, might not know the right thing to tell them to say. Um, so um, deep canvassing is one place where I would look. Um, the, and the next thing beyond deep canvassing would um, be having uh, an ongoing organization that would have um, movies and speeches. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you can take a page from the Labor Party in Britain um, they are not what they were um, 50 years ago, times have changed. Yeah. But they do have um, bi-monthly meetings mm-hmm. in a lot of places. hmm It's from membership organizations. And what you have to be willing to do is have your members meet, have them talk, um, and have them take ownership. Um, now, if you're Joe Trippi or Terry McHawk, you might not like the results of that, um, but if you want to win, um, that will be one way to do it. Republicans, one thing they have is churches. Uh-huh. And um, and that is um, a base for um, rallying the faithful and getting volunteers. Um, the Democrats traditionally had, as the contrary churches, the union movement, and that is something that's not strong now. Right. Um, but in part, because Democrats no haven't fought
0: for it. Interesting, because there are a lot of church leaders, at least around these parts, uh, that are you know pretty uh, progressive. They you know believe what they preach. <laughs> and uh, I think there's some organizational possibilities there. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Wallace Hettle, and he's written an article that Democrats don't have an alternative to embracing, embracing left populist energy. And there's no question, isolation is really widespread today. The populists in the 1890s could understand isolation back then they, they, what did they do back then to address isolation and simultaneously build, build the movement that might prove applicable today
1: yeah I, I think this basic idea which shouldn't be um, that stunningly difficult is just putting people together and then when there are struggles take the labor resurgence we've had this year. Yes. Um, John Deere went on strike, um, 10,000 workers, and they won. Um, they won quite convincingly. Um, do you remember any Democrats speaking up in support of John Deere? Um, uh-huh. On the national level?
0: Good point.
1: Um, I can't. No. Um, Roosevelt spoke um, quite clearly um, about unions and American Americans joined unions back then, they knew they were doing what the president wanted them to do. And we need something like
0: that again. Gosh, yes, it's so obvious. You're right. I mean, the union movement is, is roaring back strong. And I, Bernie Sanders has probably gone there to, to rallies. But uh, gosh, there's right. so much potential there. Well, you know, with the the airline workers and so many different uh, teachers unions, God, the, you know, there's a huge audience there, <laughs> and yet the Democrats are afraid of it. And w- one thing well, that and my Go state ahead.
1: rep, oh, my state rep, the guy who goes to the legislature, is a retired Deere worker. Uh huh. Um. So when we talk about midwestern workers, we're not talking about people from different planets. Um. <laughs> You know, Bob Crestley is um, someone who stops by my door at least every two years. I usually see him around town at other times because uh, he's very active in community organizations. Um, and he's a smart, educated guy um, uh-huh. who happened to have worked on an assembly line for 30 years
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, at a time when that was a viable middle-class sure. class thing to do.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and so I can't speak for New York, but in, in Iowa, we need to identify how the Bobcraft is. Right. Some of that will be done just by picking up the phone and calling the union home.
0: And I do think, you know, average people, uh, either whether we're at the union or not, most people do connect with that. We do connect with the idea of, you know, fair pay fair compensation, fair you know, timing, etc. The only people who don't are the owners of the factories. And just look at the numbers there. There's a lot more numbers on one side than there is on the other. And yet, I don't know how the Democrats hope to win with, you know, by maintaining that uh, uh, lack of courage in talking about things that actually connect with people. We know they'll connect with people. I wonder, but even if
1: they
0: ahead. didn't go ahead.
1: Oh, um, even if uh, a tactic doesn't get angry people, let's say Amazon. Um, yes, there's a more strong moral case to be made for um, unionizing Amazon. Absolutely. Um, and you're right. Liberal churches will be behind it. Um, the the thing is that Amazon's very good at stopping the uh, hubs from organizing, although One just did a successful, we just had a first successful warehouse for Amazon this week, and I'm forgetting where it's located. In any case, Amazon's been very good at their warehouse and their possibilities, and they've been very good about um, firing workers who are too active. Mm -hmm.
2: But
1: they can see Jeff Bezos. Bezos is, of course, the owner of the Washington Post. And an ardent Democrat, and so Democrats have to think about um, whether Jeff Bezos is helping mm-hmm. the party, <laughs> um, and um, and clearly he would Bezos would pay pay more taxes if he was asked to. Uh, we just need to ask him.
0: Yeah, I think I I, I don't know, but you're right. I mean. I think a lot of people don't like Bezos, and they they like Amazon, you know, as a basically like a public utility now, which is not really regulated. But I I think there's a lot of potential support for unionization. It will happen eventually. They fight like hell, but uh, it will happen. One thing I wonder. I, I think
1: there's a very good point. You made a very good point about Amazon as a public utility. Um, my mother's 88, mm-hmm.
2: and
1: she's living alone. And I don't think she could pull it off without Amazon, right? Um, there, there, and it's not like she has some results to go, right? Um, for the that stuff. Um, so thinking hard about regulating Amazon and actually applying our current labor laws uh, to Amazon, um, that alone would be you much closer to um having individual warehouses win, um, because that's another thing with. Workers and organizing. Workers tend to support unions when they have a chance of succeeding. If they don't, um,
0: They're they, afraid. People always, yeah, yeah. Well, um, fear is a huge, huge motivator in politics, for sure. You know, I, I like about 30 years ago, a Unitarian minister, a friend, told me there's only two things that motivate people in politics: fear and reassurance. And I think he's absolutely right. The Today's far-right Republican Party creates fear, blows it up constantly, pits one group against another. We don't trust other people. Uh, And as you write, Republicans have effectively linked this basket of fears together under one umbrella, defending the family against an intrusive government. Fears, of course, start wars. But are, are there... There are good tools for progressives to address that have not thus far been picked up when it comes to this manipulation of fear. Yes?
1: Well, I think if I stick to my single-minded activism, uh, single-minded concentration on getting people together, um, it's worth looking at the Industrial Areas Foundation, which is a group that was founded by Saul Alinsky, the famous community organizer, oh, yeah. and then was kind of pushed along in the 60s by Bayard uh
2: uh-huh.
1: who had been a trusted lieutenant of the Luther um, And the Industrial Areas Foundation now, um, they don't work elections. That's not their main um, uh, right. goal. What they do is identify in communities and then set people their way so right now, um, last summer in Des Moines, um, the Industrial Areas uh, Foundation, this group um, talked to citizens and identified mental health as a key issue where a win a win could be made and where there was strong concern. Iowa has about 120. Mental health beds in the state. Oh, um, so it's, it's very dire, um, and so there's lots of people who got got on board. Um, uh, but with the IAF, they don't. They, as an organization, don't worry too much about elections. They worry about getting ordinary people to do things like um, go talk to their legislator, or their mayor, or their city councilman, um, and um, and win them over to things that can be won. Um, getting another hundred and minutes outfits could be done. Um, it's not that radical a thing. Um, and it gives you a sense of empowerment. is thinking, if you meet with the mayor of Ankeny, you one example, I'm a small-time North, North of Des Moines. You meet with your small town mayor? Um, maybe you don't get him on board right away. Um, maybe you do. Um but if you get together and talk about how to influence the mayor with an important issue where he can come around to our side,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: it's a phenomenal thing. And that, um, that's something that if the Democrats can help with that, they are not helping with that.
0: And I know, you know, respect, feeling respected, feeling listened to, that's going to move you. You know, if people don't feel respected, I mean, I, I know uh, people, who, uh, people of color who, who say, well, the Democrats come around to my church or barbershop, you know, once every four years and that's it. You know, people aren't stupid. They get that. It, you know, you have to keep in touch and respect them. You, know, you can't just harvest, as you say, the votes. Uh, you you, you got to be there. You have to touch base with it. One thing I've been meaning to ask is celebrity. It's amazing to me how much celebrity seems to matter. You know, in in Spanish tradition, they had a caudillo, a guy who comes in riding tall on a white horse to save us all. Uh, Celebrities have become central. Uh, Issues, policy positions don't matter as much. Trump was a celebrity. Barack Obama had the celebrity thing going for him. Here in New Hampshire, we have a governor whose positions on virtually all the issues run counter to the majority opinion. But people don't pay attention to the issues. He's got a great smile. He seems nice. So he wins. How can we deal with that, uh, you know, with, with the, the whole celebrity thing and not just issues? That That perplexes the heck out of me. You have any thoughts?
1: <laughs> um. Well, the first thing that pops into my mind is that in my house growing up, I'm 59, so I I you know, can remember way back with the dinosaurs. And when I was growing up, we had a picture of John F. Kennedy. Yes. On on the wall. Yes. And um, and there's some people who try to portray him as an empty suit or someone who was, we'll never know what he could have accomplished, but we do know that um, people like my parents believed he would have accomplished a lot. And I think with Obama, um, his celebrity did come out of politics, and it was largely his talent combined with his race, and that kind of celebrity, I think, is okay. Yeah. Um he he spoke a lot here. I mean, he he pretty much took up residence in Iowa for a that, couple of months. Uh-huh. And um and see how um how the guy was um a speaker with talent oh yeah that this was in a generation. Yeah. Um so if and I think I think that's a different kind of celebrity than what Trump had. Um, I think you're right that celebrity is a real issue. Um, I know, um, uh, a friend's daughter who, um, once said, with, had a trace of irony, the beautiful way a 12-year-old can talk, um, that she'd never seen a celebrity. Oh, except for politicians. <laughs> and that's kind of the, um, uniqueness of, of Iowa, but, um, Was Trump, I'm not the best person to ask about that because I don't have cable. Um, And I'm maybe the only person who never has seen the apprentice. Um, Uh,
0: uh, There's two of us. (laughs) I I, I, I just, I couldn't. I I can't either, but, uh, and, and, It perplexed me back when I was running for re-election to the state senate here in New Hampshire. I was at some gathering and there was like a big lunch table and this one woman said, oh, I'm sitting with a celebrity. She meant me. i was a celebrity? But that, you know, it's just somehow connecting with people. And I think what you said about Obama basically camping out in Iowa, when you listen to people... People really, you know, they, they connect with you. And and they want, people want to feel heard. There's no question about that. And, you know, you, you talk about defending family from, you know, big government. People are afraid of that. Somehow they, they've wrapped it up with the anti-vax ridiculousness. Uh, and, but they don't want government interference. And yet, you know, when it comes to uh, reproductive rights, that's there. But something that, you know, it, 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 the culture war is working. It's really working for the other side. It's not about politics. It's about culture and using that fear and reassurance. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley is really on to something, I think, when he, and, which touches on the fears about attacks on the family. He's got a full-throated, he's all about masculinity. He wants a revival of the dominance of a John Wayne version of masculinity. He knows Missouri, but how do you think this thing about masculinity is going to play in other uh, Midwestern states? That obviously has a lot of political ramifications, but it's a cultural thing, too. Your thoughts?
1: Um, I don't know. I do know that it's easier to declare yourself to be a real man than it is to... Have other people come to the same conclusion? <laughs> and, um, True. Um, Trump was obviously successful with that, um, but there was a downside. He did terribly with women, and he might do worse with women if he, ran, if he runs again. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm.
0: But that you know, masculinity—that masculinity—I think really connects with a lot of people, and it's—it's it's been there in so many different wars. And I, I noticed around here, a lot of the Trump people were like, all about reassertion of white male dominance. And, you know, they're scared about uh, homosexuality, gay equality, uh, abortion rights, things like that. And uh, I don't know. That, that that You know, the cultural thing, I think most people are with us on that. But uh, we're not exactly enthusiastically supporting something other than, you know, masculinity. And there is, there are other options. Go ahead.
1: Oh, with, um, and I would get we went from Obama to Trump. We went in 99 counties, 33 of them went, flipped um, from Obama to Trump. And um, you have to ask yourself why, and one reason was that the Democrats had a lousy candidate in Hillary Clinton. Yes. Um, this is a person who nearly lost to a socialist, um, did lose to an African-American, um, uh, and lost to Trump, but was not endorsed by major power brokers in his party. So this is someone who, had, uh, who was weak. That Trump Good point. Was, you know, when, when Trump did the web, um, but also, there was a good study done out of Iowa State showing that the 33 counties that flipped were places that were more rural um, than even um, the five or six most urban counties in Iowa. And these places were places that were in freefall for mm. all of the Obama years. And these rural areas, not just here, but across the country, um, are being hollowed out. And you can look at that as some sort of inevitable economic process um, in which the most most educated go to the coast um, because that's where the best jobs are. But I don't think that's inevitable. Right. Um, What you could do for rural states is first improve uh, the air service. Um, with, until 1978, um, airlines were required to serve um, uh, cities. I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but in my town, um, we had five airlines, and now we have one. We used to have five from my town in Northeast Iowa to Minneapolis, Kansas City, Chicago, and um, there was one other, um, now it's, now it's down to Chicago, um, and that's a good result of government regulation. Um, doctors are underpaid here in the heartland. Mm-hmm. Um, Medicare payments are higher for people who live in higher, uh, uh, Income areas. cost of living areas. Why is the government should be tilting the playing field in that direction? I have
0: no idea. And, and it could tilt it the other way. And if we ever get Build Back Better to actually happen and be an effect on the ground, I would think that could play well, you know, and create a lot of new jobs in the areas that, as you say, are are hollowed out. Uh, there's There's all kinds of possibilities. And one thing I wonder about, people say, well... You know, West Virginia, Joe Manchin, he can't be seen as left. It's West Virginia, coal country. Alexandria or Ocasio-Cortez and the squad has great appeal on the two coasts. But is it realistic in the heartland? Uh, how How is she perceived there? Would not tacking to that populist left spell certain doom for Democrats nationally? Your thoughts on that?
1: You know, I can't tell you what would happen in four and thirty five different um, uh seats. Right. And what I can say is that Eleanor Mar um, is from Minneapolis. Um, the DSA um, member who's um, a Congresswoman outside of Detroit. Um she is um from Detroit, um, Deerwood, Illinois. I live in Western Place, so um, I think we have to be more precise when we talk about um, Midwesterners. There's all kinds yeah. of uh, Democratic kind of sources on the Chicago City Council, um, and those are Midwesterners too. So I think that taking you know a fourth of the country or a third of the country and um, trying to paint it with one brush um, doesn't really Work, um, and what you do have to do is pay attention to them yeah. between yes, yes, all policies that they um, that they care about. I'll give you another example. Sure. This is for the South. Mississippi, it's been decided, is the red state, oh, yeah. and therefore not worth advertising here. Um, but the population of Mississippi is thirty eight percent African American, mm-hmm. so. You're not looking at a state where it's impossible to imagine the idea of a Democrat winning. Um, and I there think- are three full time. they have three employees right now. The Mississippi Democratic Party. One of them is my, one of my former students, uh, and so that's why I know that three people for an entire state um, who have an ongoing presence. It's not enough.
0: And that goes back to. Uh, where the Democratic Party was before 1964, it was the party of segregationists. No question about that. Lyndon Johnson took a big risk, but but he won. He he allied with uh, the the uh, civil rights movement, and it worked. That kind of boldness, that's thinking. I hate to use the phrase outside the box because it's overused, but. That's the kind of thing I think we're talking about here. People want some boldness. They don't want somebody with no backbone. They want somebody to stand up for them. And it can work. I don't, Democrats just, uh, I don't know, they, they, they can't win by being Republican light, I don't think. I'm curious, you said that, the, that Trump is the glue holding that party together. As we enter the election year 2022, what is your sense of the quality of that glue? As we move forward,
1: yeah, and there's in the pieces, um, it's not super glue. it's more like Elmer's glue,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, the kind, the kind that your kid might bring home from school, um, that's sort of um, on construction paper and yeah, it's falling apart. Good, um, <laughs> that um could be the case in the truck. We don't know where, yeah. where his legal situation is going to go, yeah, on several fronts, and. Um, we don't know. We know that his party is gutsy enough to um, uh, to stay with him. Yeah. What's astonishing, and I do think that people have to explain it better than they've done, is to see the texts that were sent to Mark Meadows by people like who oh, gotcha. are and, and um, Sean Hannity. Um, these um, awful partisans. Um, saw that something was going terribly wrong. And w- will the Republicans pay a price for that? Um, they already have. Um, they lost Georgia. Um, the last two Senate in Georgia after January Yep, yep. And I mean, we'll be having a completely different conversation about Biden right now, if not for those two
0: seats. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. i got to ask one last question, Professor Hettle. Democracy itself is under serious threat. I think, really, the greatest threat since World War II. Voter suppression is real. The threat of authoritarianism is real. Do you think? Does that? Do people in the Midwest, in Iowa, do they get that? Is that going to motivate people? How, how does that play?
1: I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't Direct. think it comes up
0: very often. <laughs> well, that's the uh-huh. thing.
1: Yeah, I, was, I mean with historians always be worried about those who will predict the future um, because we, if I could predict the future oh. I wouldn't be uh, teaching nine hours a week uh, at a small college I'd be in Las Vegas um, uh, playing cards
0: but it's true I don't I think people connect that it, it doesn't connect with their lives right now which scares the crap out of me I will yeah. say <laughs> I mean, it does yeah
1: yeah um,
0: I don't know if I mean. I wonder if Democrats, you know, if they talk about, "Hey, they're threatening our democracy." Is that going to cut it?
1: No, you clearly have to offer people something. Yes, and we know that from um, the cases of authoritarianism in South America or Europe. Yeah, Um, you have to offer something. While at the same time, uh, I think you can do both. Uh, talk about the threat to democracy
2: mm-hmm. um
1: because the question becomes if democracy is threatened it's threatened by who um donald trump who's working with the one percent so you can you can tie make, this yes. yes to democracy i think very um very dryly. um yep uh, that's what i see in the future I, I would just emphasize Trump's age, um, his his general ineptitude. Um, he was done uh, as as president. Um, so, um, his drawing power—it's hard—it's hard to predict.
0: It's impossible I, I, to predict. And I'm I'm usual I'm almost always wrong in my predictions. But we try anyway. Fascinating discussion. Our guest on keeping democracy alive has been Dr. Wallace Heddle, talking about how Democrats really don't have an alternative to embrace left populist energy. Well we've been trying one thing, you know, steering to some imaginary middle and it's not working real well, I'm thinking maybe it's time to try something new. Thank you so much for being with us on the show, Professor Hell.
1: Thank you, Bert.